Last Reformation weekend, I was uh, officiating a, a wedding of a granddaughter. And um, after that, I turned 70. Not related. Some, somehow it just happened after that. And then um, just a couple months back, uh, Alyssa and her brand new husband from a year ago uh, presented us with our first great-grandson. So things have certainly changed in in our world as uh, the Lord has graciously carried us. Three score and ten. So all my young friends, um, yeah, I, I remember sitting down there in those seats and uh, and hearing people say, I can't, I don't know how it happened, I just got old. <laughs> so rejoice, oh, my friends, in your days of your youth, uh, they are brief, but they're very good. They're precious. They're a great gift from God. Enjoy being young. Remember your creator while you're young. Um, accountability is ahead, and, and it'll be great as you serve him and know him. I just begin with a tiny phrase from Peter that I think summarizes our precious day. Peter said, therefore, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Now, I, I'm not, I haven't been uh, given a heads up from our Lord that my departure is imminent. But I, the rest of that with Peter, um, we are privileged, are we not, to review precious things that are familiar to us, but are so valuable in the process. This afternoon, we're looking at this concept of our Lord's resurrection from this phrase, Acts chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. After Jesus had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive. After suffering, by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Farewells, goodbyes, separation, death. Death is a, an enemy, says the word of God. Death is one of the most challenging aspects of our earthly pilgrimage. And it's one of the tough parts of life. Some are very sudden. Unexpected, one of the commonest words in your local newspaper obituaries is died unexpectedly. So a semi-truck plows into the gas station in Lance, and a man dies unexpectedly, and a kayak and a, and a roof mount rips off at 65 miles an hour into a vehicle going 65 miles an hour the other way. And uh, Sini Stretch, who would have thought Sini Stretch entering through eternity like that from the Sini Stretch unexpectedly? Some 
Some of our separations are unexpected and sudden. Some of them are known in advance. When the doctor says you have a terminal illness, we guess that you'll have X number of days, months, or weeks to, to survive. The mixed blessing kind of departures when someone has suffered a long time physically and we, we say, well, at least their, their suffering is done. And we, we're kind of happy for them in that realm. Some of them are just plain gut-wrenching. As Debbie and I laid our little four-year-old granddaughter to rest in the grave. It's just hard. It's uh, very, very challenging, very difficult when the nearest and dearest to you experiences death and the separation time begins on this earth. In Acts chapter 20, we find the Apostle Paul saying to a group of elders, um, you're not going to see my face anymore. And these, these men, these leadership men in a local church are weeping and they're falling on his neck. I mean, we've been privileged down through the years to have been exposed to godly pastors and teachers of the word, but to have spent any time with the Apostle Paul must have been awesome. And they just, it just grieved them that they couldn't see him anymore. And they were there on the uh, shores on the beach, uh, praying and saying farewell to their friend for the earth time. John chapter 14 through 16, there in the upper room, the Lord Jesus is talking to his disciples, and several times he said, I'm about to leave, and it's, gonna, it's just going to be hard. You're not going to like this. And, and he was right on. I mean, you could not be with Jesus for three years straight and have him say, well, I'm going to leave, but... Um, you're not going to see me for a while, but you're going to see me later. And he kept saying that, and he kept re referring them to the fact that they were going to go through a difficult time of separation. In Acts chapter 1, we find that those same apostles are filled with joy, and the reason, of course, is because that Lord who had been separated from them for a short time has raised from the dead. I'm going to spend time in just two texts this afternoon with you. The first one, we'll look just briefly at 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, the wonder of the resurrection. We want to take just a simple glorious look at how critical it is, what a critical feature of the gospel, the good news it is that the Lord Jesus, who died a death that was very special and very particular and very meaningful and very pointed, did not stay dead, and that resurrection was verifying of his work on the cross. It was validating. It was a heads up to the universe. This one is the first fruits. He's the primary leading 
individual that will tell us and, and show us what the power of God is as far as death is concerned. And the Apostle Paul gives us immediately a sense of what the gospel would be like without a resurrection, or probably put better, how decimating and how devastating the non-resurrection would be. And so without going into a lot of detail, I trust you're familiar with the passage, but the Apostle Paul in verse 13 and 14 makes us aware of the fact that the nature and the credibility of gospel preaching would be immediately impacted. There's no message of the nature of the gospel without a resin erected Christ without a risen Christ. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. The integrity and the honesty of the witnesses hinges upon the reality of what they said. If they're going to tell about a resurrected Christ and he didn't really resurrect, they're liars. Flat and flat out the way it is. They would be men of deception rather than men of hope. Verse 16 and 17 tells us that the content and the value of our faith hinge upon it. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is worthless. The confidence that we place, the trust that we place in this one called the Christ if he is just a mortal and is in fact not risen, is a hollow and valueless confidence. The nature of the gospel is totally damaged if Jesus is not alive. Verse 17 says, the issue of sin and separation are left unaddressed. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So the apostle, again, is making us very, very aware that the greatest issues of our relationship with the living God are undealt with if Christ died like the rest of us and stayed dead. Verse 18 and 19 tell us that any future hope of any final resurrection of the human race is hollow. Those, says verse 18, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They've, it's that John 3.16 word, they've, they've become ruined. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Our present status, says the Apostle Paul, if there is no resurrection of our Savior, is that of being miserable objects of pity. People ought to feel sorry for us, and rightly so. We have nothing to hope in and no confidence in the great, great issues of sin and eternity and a holy God and separation and hell all those things, and much less the wonder of dying physically and staying there perpetually. 
Paul says if Jesus is dead, you ought to feel sorry for us. It's like going to Disneyland to hear their gospel. Um, Believe in you, and you can be anything you want to be. That's a hollow gospel. And if Jesus isn't alive, our gospel's hollow too. It's, it's as good as a Disney gospel. But uh, we're not only made aware of the fact that we would, if Jesus is not alive, be clinging to a hollow message and a desperate future, we're also in the process of clinging to any kind of faith in him, wasting our time. Paul tells us that in verse 32, and you remember this one. 32 says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We really should be watching the Spartans and the Wolverines. I guess that's later tonight. We'll probably still be better off avoiding it. But you know what? There's, there's, in the Apostle Paul's words, everything in life hinges upon this awesome wonder, this fact of our Lord's resurrection. The gospel is critically dependent upon the fulfillment of all of Jesus' work validated by and climaxed with his resurrection from the dead. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel that we preach to you. It's the gospel, this is in verse 1, this is the gospel which I preach to you which you also received, in which you also stand, and by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This glorious gospel was, in fact, where the Corinthians came into a relationship with the living Lord Jesus. Three specific historic events that the Apostle Paul majors on and we love as part and parcel of the gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Three specific historic events, all of them were the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. All of them were so laid out in advance by the writers of the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that when they came to pass, they would be recognized by the eyes of faith. That this wasn't just a normal man. His death wasn't just a normal death and that his resurrection was awesome and priceless in its value to us. They were all done according to the scriptures. That's why the Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus starts with Moses and the prophets and he takes these two whimpering brothers all the way through the Bible and says, doesn't it already tell you he had to suffer? 
He had to die. And he had to be raised from the dead. Oh, it was all there. And the eyes of faith are allowed through the power of the Spirit to put that all together and connect the dots. And that becomes the foundation of our faith, the content of that which we believe. And then the Apostle Paul says that all of that was entrusted to a specific group of eyewitnesses called the apostles. That's a word that refers to authorized spokesmen, representatives that have been given authority by the one they represent. And those apostolic witnesses, the Apostle Paul says, not only was he dead, buried, and resurrection, resurrected, but verse 5 says he appeared. Verse 6 says he appeared. Verse 7 says he appeared. Verse 8 says, he appeared. And the repetitive nature of the word that the Apostle Paul is using here are speaking of a vital strategy of the Lord Jesus Christ in his infinite wisdom to give you and I the incredible gift of eyewitness historic accounts under the direction of and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the vital strategy of Christ. Now I'd like to take you for the rest of our little time this afternoon to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, to look closely at the wonder of the risen Christ in those appearings and how Dr. Luke, the consummate historian, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and we find as we get acquainted with Luke and his work under the direction of the Spirit, a, a masterful mind, a, a, a wonderfully detailed historian that the Lord used to give us this so very, very important information. So first of all, we're going to note Jesus' earthwalk, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Over three years of earth time, our Lord Jesus Christ began to do certain things. That's his work. And he began to teach certain things. What he said and what he did were the mighty parts of his mission that the Word of God records for us in some detail all that we need to know, not all that's available, but all we need to know, the words and works of our Lord Jesus Christ, how vital they are. And for over three years, Luke says, Jesus began to do and teach that until the day, 33 years of perfect righteousness, three years of public presentation as our Lord lived under the law, fulfilling the law, as he lived as one of us, the Messiah of Israel, the King, Emmanuel, God with us, three years of public presentation. And those that watched him marveled at him. Those that heard him said, nobody ever spoke like this man. He spoke with authority. He spoke with grace. He spoke with compassion. What a ministry our Lord Jesus had for those years. 
And then the signs, the miracles that he produced and that he was able to accomplish in the presence of so many witnesses, those life-restoring, life-giving works of giving eyesight to the blind and giving lepers back their cleanness in their life, reaching out into the hearts of, of those who are broken and demonized and the, even the dead, our Lord working and speaking to the glory of his Father and introducing himself with unmistakable clarity to the world that he walked in. Three years, he prepared during that time a group of chosen witnesses, men that would walk around and call him rabbi, teacher. And they would ask him questions and they would listen to him and they would help him, they would aid him. They were students that were, not, none, of, none of our kids here today are like this, but Jesus had to look at his class sometimes and say, what is it with you guys? You're so slow. Won't you ever get it? Um, he, he was not a frustrated teacher. He was honest. <laughs> and um, and he, he, had, he had a group that was, um, they were just really normal men. And they, they weren't the greatest students. But you know what? He didn't quit. He had chosen them on purpose, sovereignly. He had a plan for them. And so during those three years, he prepared them for their ultimate task of being his witnesses. One day, the Lord Jesus Christ was made to be sin for us. He took our place. Three days, he was laid resting. His body was laid in a borrowed tomb. His spirit had some missions that he went on during that time. I'm quite confident but our Lord Jesus Christ's earthwalk was finished at that point. And what Jesus began to do and to teach brought him to the crucifixion and his burial. The earthwalk of the Lord Jesus. Secondly we, secondly, we look at his early witnesses. Luke tells us in Acts 1 verse 2, until the day when Jesus was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Until the day, pre-ascension, Luke gives us information on the time in between the resurrection of Christ and his ascension. During that time frame, the Lord Jesus was giving orders. I don't know all that he told those men, but he had specific instructions and specific responsibilities that he communicated to them during that time before his ascension. His team was being prepared. These apostles were chosen. By the Holy Spirit, he gave them instructions and then Luke tells us that he presented himself alive, appearing and speaking and gathering and commanding them, interacting with them very purposefully during those 40 days. Jesus' early witnesses, a team was being prepared. 
the third and fourth verses tell us that, Peter, in a Jerusalem sermon later on, would say this, You, Israel, put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Jesus Christ very carefully, very purposefully prepared a band of eyewitnesses who would carry the fact of his resurrection to the world and to us as well. Our Lord Jesus was very intentional. He always was. He was confirming his resurrection in the presence of a group of men that he charged with the task of making the facts known. Peter, also in the home of Cornelius sometime later, put it this way. God raised Jesus up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So much in that text, isn't there? As Peter is making us and Cornelius, the, the Gentile representative, very aware of the fact of the nature of our Lord Jesus' resurrection and his, uh, the witnesses that he had prepared. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says, To these, to these chosen apostles, these chosen witnesses, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. By many convincing proofs. Luke chose a word that's translated proofs or infallible proofs in King James and New King James. Some translations call it, uh, translate it clear and certain signs. Um, ESV is many proofs. The, the word only appears one time in the New Testament. It's right here. It's the word Luke chose to describe what the apostolic witness was all about. I'm going to prove it to you. This is going to be available through the eyewitness of these men. Many infallible or convincing proofs. About a dozen such appearances are recorded. Likely, there were more, but the ones that we have are written, and there's about a dozen of those that are recorded. They were varied in the timing, varied in the place that they happened, and varied in their nature. The time of day, the length of duration that he stayed with them, the place that it happened. Uh, it could be on the road, walking. It could be in a locked room. It could be on a beach. There were a variety of settings. Some were in Judea. Some were in the region of Galilee. Judea was, of course, where the action was in the realms of Jerusalem. And up there in Galilee is where the apostles themselves lived. Almost, if not exclusively, he appeared to his own. 
it's, we're reminded on the road to Emmaus that even the two guys that Jesus was walking with didn't recognize him until he let them recognize him. It's amazing the control that the Lord has over whom he reveals himself to and how it happens. But we'll read another testimony of that here in a few moments. Our Lord's desire, his goal, his purpose, first of all, to assure his eyewitnesses of the hard evidence he's alive. Paul is going to tell us in 1 Corinthians that there was, they numbered from 1 to 500 at once. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. Paul would say there were at once more than 500 brothers at the same time. Quite a crowd at one time. Sometimes they were individual. The witnesses were not gullible and they weren't fanatics. One of the key factors in the work of the eyewitnesses that Jesus appointed is the fact that none of them believed he was raised from the dead. He had to convince them. They, they, were, they were teachable, but not gullible. They were open to facts, if, and the Lord very graciously, very kindly ministered to them in that way. Their intake would result in a united message and a very, very committed group. This band of individuals who were handpicked by Christ himself under the Spirit would, um, in fact, carry out the mission that he had intended for them. The Lord Jesus achieved his goal. He prepared them. He commanded them. He gave them all the evidence they needed. And... Across the board, these men were convinced he's alive. Jesus will give ample visual proof. Maybe even we could include audio proof. Was the voice of Jesus distinctive? I think we get that little indication when he asked Mary why she's weeping. And it's only when he says her name that the gospel writer says she turned. So she had her back to him. But when she heard his, him say her name, I think it was not only that he knew her name, but I think the very recognizable, familiar tone of his voice was part of his manifestation of, of who he was. Um, you and I have voices that are dear to us that are familiar to us. and So Jesus gave visual proof. He, G, Peter said he, he became um, visible. And he also invited tactile proof. Touch me. Put your fingers on my hands, Thomas. Put your hand in my side. Um, touch me and see that there's, a spirit doesn't have a body like I have. He ate food in their presence. He would describe himself as truly physical. In fact, the very one that they had seen crucified. Repeatedly, the Lord displayed his validating wounds that made even his glorified body distinctive. And he was working diligently to provide all the hard evidence that his 
eyewitness team would need, he was going to convince them through his kind ministry during those 40 days that he's alive. Secondly, he would address his witnesses' heart issues. You see, the Lord Jesus not only was going about the business of getting them ready to do their business of being his witnesses, but he was touching their lives personally. There were a few private appearances of the risen Lord. Peter, battling with the shame of denial. Mary Magdalene, crushed by the thought that the most precious person on the planet is gone. James says, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to be the first martyr. He's going to have a big job of leading the first local church in Jerusalem. And Jesus appeared to him personally. There were a few private appearances. There were some group appearances. People huddled in fear. People assembled in worship. All of a sudden, there he was. I don't know how it worked. I don't know if it... I mean, it definitely blew their minds sometimes when the doors were locked and he, he was just there. But... Um, I know Hollywood usually has some kind of boom, they got some kind of sound effects, and I don't think there were any. But he wasn't there, and then he was there, and he could do that at will. So there were private appearances, group appearances. Sometimes he appeared to as a, a just a gentle reward for devotion. That's why Mary was at the tomb. Uh, she just had to be close, even if it was only for a body, but he was risen. Sometimes it was a wake-up time. The Saul of Tarsus riding madly on his way to Damascus and smack down, you're going to meet the risen Christ today. And the Lord Jesus did a masterful work of bringing conviction and salvation and and. Uh, giving him his life task all in the same little span of time there. It was a great, great wake-up call of the risen Christ. Paul says, I was like once born out of time. Sometimes it was to build faith, wasn't it? Peter, um, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he, you know, he's restoring him personally. Sometimes it was men like Thomas, um, don't, don't be unbelieving. Here's, here's the evidence, Thomas. So Jesus was not only preparing them to validate the fact of his, test, of his resurrection, but he was also caring for them personally in the process. To these, says Luke, he also appeared, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Our Lord's earthly ministry began with 40 days, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. They concluded with 40 days of glorious ministry, appearing as the resurrected person that he was, uh, 
to prepare his witnesses as he would step into the presence of the Heavenly Father at the, the great throne of the majesty on high. These were not 40 days of uninterrupted life as it was before. The United States has been clamoring for some time to get back to normal, whatever that is. And Jesus didn't, he didn't go, it wasn't back to normal. This, these 40 days were not life as usual. He wasn't trying to reestablish what they had experienced before. He was making them very, very aware that things were going to be different. He was going to be alive. He was going to be theirs. He was not going to be present with them physically and visibly. They were not 40 days of blazing radiance and splendor. They will meet him in his glory soon enough when they step into his presence in their death. But during these days, the Lord Jesus Christ was not in his transfiguration glory. He appeared to them very approachable, very much what they had seen before. He was very familiar in his address and his, his appearance. The varied and momentary presentation that he would give them during those days would be a sample of the new nature of their forever relationship. He was going to make them aware of his nature, his connection to them, even though it was going to be different. Oh, and by the way, as we draw this to a close this afternoon, it's so encouraging to my heart, and I trust to yours, that our magnificent Savior knew these things. During those 40 days, he knew who needed him. The Lord Jesus is a personal Savior. We use that word lightly sometimes, but he loves his sheep individually. He knows his sheep by name. He calls them by name. He, he deals with them personally. He knew who needed him. He knew when to come. He knew the timing. His, the Lord's timing is always right, isn't it? Never too early, never too late. He, he knows when we need him. He knows when to come. He knows what we need the most, like his disciples. He knew some needed to be encouraged. He knew some needed to be reinstated in their confidence, in their relationship with him. He knew some just needed to know that he was alive. He knew what they needed most. And perhaps another great encouragement is he knew where to find them. <laughs> uh, you know, we're youpers, right? I mean, you mean the Lord Jesus is the God of, of the remote spots of planet Earth and he knows where his sheep are parked? Yeah. He knew where to find them and he knew how to help them. The... Number one ministry of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is what we've heard about several times today. He not only has to get us our eyes off ourselves when it comes to trying to earn our way 
into his presence and depending on our own righteousness. But he needs to get our eyes off ourselves when we're just struggling with life. And uh, boy, he was good at that. He would be the one to whom the writer to the Hebrews would refer when he says we need to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And for our great encouragement this afternoon, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. So we've noted Jesus' earth walk and his early witness. His work was to assure his disciples of the hard evidence of his resurrection, to prepare them to be his representatives, and his willingness to address their heart issues to prepare them to trust him well. We close with the exit words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which my Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. He told his disciples, you know why I came. I came to die. You know where I'll be. I'll be alive. I'll be at the Father's right hand. I also know what you need. You're going to need power. And for 10 days, he said, don't you dare leave Jerusalem because you're powerless. Ten days later comes the day of Pentecost when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The word power here is the word dunamis. It's the word ability power. It's the uh, two words in the New Testament, the, the dunamis power and the exousia power. Exousia power is authority power. It's the badge on the police officer that says he has the right to do things. The ability power, the dunamis power, is his car and his gun and his, his uh, radio and all the other stuff he can do has available to accomplish his purposes. And Jesus said, you guys already have the authority. I've, I have authorized you as my eyewitnesses. What you need is ability power, and it will come to you. And, in fact, it did. Part of the Lord Jesus' high priestly prayer, prayer is this. I do not ask, Father, on behalf of these eyewitness apostles alone. This is the prayer that he prays the night that he's betrayed. He's talking to the Father about these eyewitnesses, these chosen guys. I'm going to I'm going to make sure they know I'm alive. I'm going to make sure that they're equipped to witness with power. I'm not praying on their behalf only, but for those who will believe on me through their word. You know, they got the job done. Jesus knew they would. He didn't have a plan B. He didn't have a backup group. He didn't have any kind of substitutes. He picked these guys and got them ready and they delivered the goods. 
The Holy Spirit uses their word, the apostles' word of a risen Christ. And he prays that they all may be one, that all who believe would be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Those men were used of God, and part of the key ministry of our Lord was to make sure that they had many convincing proofs. They were not to be at all unsure about the glorious resurrection of their Savior and of the work that he had sent them to do to proclaim his gospel, a gospel that's filled with life-giving power because it's true. It's true through and through. Father, how we love you for your strategies, your methodologies, the way that you set about to make sure that in the 21st century, a little band of your people here in upper Michigan would have the facts, the facts of the greatness of our risen Lord, knowing that that resurrection validated every aspect of his saving work and gives us confidence that we will be raised as well, that death shall not have a final say-so in any of our eternal existence, but we will live because he lives. Lord, touch our hearts with encouragement that our Savior, who is alive, is who he is in his desire and his willingness to touch our lives in so many personal ways. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.